This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. Let's take our Bibles and go to the gospel according to Mark and the 12th chapter. And as we come to Mark chapter number 12, we understand that the earthly life and ministry of Jesus is about uh, to end. He is going to the cross of Calvary where he will suffer and bleed and die for us. But I'm glad the story didn't stop there. On the third day, he rose again. And then after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us that in this moment, this hour, he is on the right hand of the throne of God, and he is making intercession for us. And we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and we rejoice in all of that. And we understand this, that he is coming again. And as we see what is happening in our world, there is no mistake about it. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. The events of prophecy are unfolding. Uh, right before our very eyes, we see the world that is prepared for the Antichrist, and uh, we understand where we go, where we're heading. We understand we understand that we're citizens of another country, and uh, Jesus is coming again. We praise God for that. We come to Mark chapter number twelve, and we are, as, as I mentioned, in the closing days of the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And uh, after cleansing the temple. Uh, to the chagrin and dismay of the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, uh, the Lord cleansed the temple, and, and they asked what authority he had for doing that. He let them know that that house was his house, <laughs> and his house is to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And then he begins to speak to them concerning the parable of the vineyard. We looked at that this past Lord's Day. And we see that the Lord has a plan for Israel, but he has a plan also that involves his church and his plan of redemption. And we are grateful uh, to be a part of that plan. As we come to verse number 13, we see that the effort has intensified greatly. Uh, the resolve on behalf of the leaders of Jerusalem, there was a group called the Sanhedrin. That's the seventy. And uh, they, they were a group that wielded political and religious power, and uh, their resolve was to put the Lord to death. They wanted to end and silence his voice. They wanted to put an end to his following, and they were willing to go to great lengths to accomplish that purpose. As we come to verse number 13, we'll read through verse number 34. I want to encourage you to read along with me so you have all of the context uh, as we look at these questions that are going to be asked of the Lord, and we look at them all three together, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground this morning. And so I encourage you to read along with me so that you have the context that you need as we examine this portion of Scripture. Beginning in verse number 13, the Bible said, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, 
but teaches the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? In other words, is it lawful to pay our taxes to Caesar? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, saith unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, which is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any questions. As we come to verse number 34, we come to a time when there are no more questions. No more questions. By the way, our world is filled with questions today. The skeptics and the cynics and the critics they formulate their questions, they promote their questions, they speak much of their questions. But as it was in the days of Jesus, there's coming a day when he returns again that all the questions will be silenced and there will be no more questions. Now, as we look at these questions and we try to look at them together, 
uh, this morning as we go through this passage, we're going to note some things, and I hope you'll follow along with me. And I think as we go through this, we're going to see some things that we can very understandably relate to in our day. And may God speak to us by his word. I want you to notice, first of all, as we examine this portion of Scripture, we see alliances are formed. Alliances are formed. Notice in verse number 13, and they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and to the Herodians to catch him in his words. Then I want you to notice, if you would please, in verse number 18, then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they asked him. And then we find again in verse number 28, and one of the scribes came. And so here we find a a group of unlikely people who have come together in an effort to, to catch Jesus in his words. They've come with questions. They have come as one group, though they represent many groups, they have formed an alliance against God. This is an unlikely alliance. This is an unholy alliance. Uh, This is an alliance of, of groups that stand diametrically opposed to one another, but there is one common thread that has caused them to form this alliance. They hate Jesus. They want him dead, and they want his followers to go away. By the way, that's the same agenda that many have today, is it not? You see, we find an alliance taking place today. It involves political parties and political figures. It involves social groups and social leaders. It involves businesses and business leaders. It involves all kinds of special interest groups and civil rights so-called groups who have come together, though they have uh, very conflicting interests They have come together for one common purpose. They hate the gospel of Christ. They hate God. They hate his church. They hate his word. They want no governance, no oversight. They want no no message of reproof uh, concerning the error of their ways. They want to live the way they want to live, and they don't want anybody to tell them they're wrong or to live in a way that shows them that they're wrong. The psalmist wrote of this in Psalms chapter 2 and verse number 1 when he said this, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here we find the kings of the earth, they set themselves. They set the battle in array. They come together and they take counsel, though they themselves have conflicting interests, though they themselves are enemies, though they themselves cannot live with, uh, in, in agreement with one another, they have one thing that brings them together. They take counsel together against the Lord. They have formed an alliance And against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We have groups and political leaders in our nation who say one thing, they they have a message, they try to They try to convince us that they care about people, that they care about the rights of humanity. They care nothing about the rights of humanity. They tell us that they are for women's rights. 
but they celebrate the death of babies in the womb in the name of women's rights. They tell us that they are for the LGBT agenda, but the transgender group wants to compete on a high school level and uh, take away the opportunities of young girls in high school so that they cannot compete or they, they do not have a fair ground on which to compete. We have groups that promote the Muslim religion, and I believe in the freedom of religion. America was founded on that principle. In fact, it is our Baptist forefathers who stood for that principle of the freedom of religion. They eschewed and avoided at all costs the establishment of an official religion of the government. But that has been greatly perverted and twisted today to remove the church from the public arena. You see, alliances have been formed among unlikely groups to come against the Lord Jesus. This week in one of our national news networks, Eric Metaxas, who is a, who is a Christian and an author, spoke on a news program, and he boldly and clearly made this statement. He said, let's not be confused about what is happening. And I paraphrase his remarks. He said, all of the anarchy and all of the unrest and all of the disagreement that we see in our nation has one common denominator. This is rebellion against God. He said, the rebellion against authority is ultimately rebellion against God. And that is exactly what Jude wrote to us in the book of Jude. We just went through the book of Jude when he said they speak evil of dignities. The authority of, that God has established is being undermined in our nation and our world, and ultimately the adversaries are not just adversaries of authority here on earth. They are adversaries of divinely appointed authority, the authority of God. So alliances are formed unlikely alliances, unholy alliances. Then we see a second thing. Agendas are determined. Why did they come with a question? Well, they did not come with a question seeking answers. They came rather, as the Bible tells us in verse number 13, to catch him in his words. Now, who came in verse 13? The Herodians and the Pharisees. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were the political leaders of the day. They owed their place to the Roman Empire. They enjoyed their position. They enjoyed their power. And Herod had great power. They were the political leaders who were bloodthirsty and hungry for power and greedy for gain. They taught allegiance to Rome. They promoted taxation to Rome because they themselves benefited. We also find in verse 13 that the Pharisees came. Now, who are they? They're the theological leaders of the day. Now, they had a lot of their theology messed up. They were far from what God intended. But nevertheless, they were perceived to be the theological leaders of the day. They claimed to be loyal to God. They looked, they said, for a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. So you have one group, the Herodians, 
who promote loyalty to Rome and the paying of taxes. You have another group, the Pharisees, who promote loyalty to God and say, don't pay your taxes. These two groups come to Jesus together. They're trying to catch him in his words. What is it they're trying to do? They know that if he answers one of them, either one of them a certain way, they don't care which answer he gives. They know that if he answers one way or the other, he's going to alienate a large group of the people. They want the people to turn against him. It sounds sort of like a White House press corps gathering, does it not? Except they're asking an imperfect man questions. Here you have a group asking the Son of God, these questions. Imagine this, trying to ensnare the Son of God. Then in verse 18, the Sadducees come unto him to ask him about the resurrection, but they have already determined in their mind there is no resurrection. They just want to stir it up. They want to stir up debate. By the way, we've got a lot of that happening in our world. People ask questions. They want to stir up debate. They want to incite one group against the other. And then you have the scribe. And the scribes would, were, were a group of people very well respected uh, in, in Jerusalem. They were the lawyers. They, they were the keepers of, of the Scripture and the Old Testament law. They were to ensure that every copy was as it should be. Uh, and they had positions of esteem. They would often debate about the law and what was the heart of the law. And so here they come to Jesus saying they want answers, but they have an agenda. And we need to understand this world has an agenda. It's the same as it was then. It's against God and against God's truth. We see a third thing here that assertions are made. Assertions. They're asking questions, but they're really not making, they're not asking a question. They're making statements. They're making statements in their questions. Now, the first question is regarding the matter of taxation. The second question is regarding the matter of the resurrection. And the third is regarding the matter of the law. Now, as they come with these questions and with these assertions, we note some things. First of all, they asked deceptively. They asked deceptively. Notice in verse number 14, and when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. Can you hear the sarcasm as it drips off of their tongue? You can hear their sharp teeth gnashing against one another, can't you? Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they loved to be recognized for who they were. I think about Haman. Remember when Mordecai would not bow to Haman, how it infuriated him and how he decided he wanted not just Mordecai dead, but he wanted all the Jews dead. You see, men love to be praised, but Jesus would not lavish upon them uh, all of the praise that they felt they deserved. And so they said, thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Now, did they really believe that? Absolutely not. If they had, they would have submitted to the truth. And so the question comes, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? Verse 16, but, or verse 15 rather, but he knowing their hypocrisy said unto them, why tempt ye me? You see, they asked deceptively. 
They asked the question as if they wanted the answer. They didn't care about the answer. Then we notice as the Sadducees come, they asked disingenuously. They're asking about the resurrection. Notice the question in verse 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. That's how they're known. They're the theological liberals of the day. They do not believe in the resurrection. And they say, Master, in verse 19, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed, and the second took her and died. Neither left he any seed, and the third likewise also, and the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. Now notice how they come to Jesus. They said, Lord, Master, Moses said this in the law. Isn't it interesting that people find uh, some obscure point and try to use it to build their entire case against God? They, 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 they take some thing that they think they have found a, a loophole in the scripture, or they, they think they found some uh, inconsistencies in the scripture, and they want to base an argument against God based on that. But as we're going to find out, they were in the wrong because they did not know the Bible. I get, I get amused at, at, at some of these uh, news commentators and people who are clearly in opposition to God and God's word, how they will find passages of scripture and they will, they will promote uh, or, or they will, they will uh, uh, put up a verse on the screen and, 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 and try to make God and God's word look ridiculous. They are that crowd who rest the scripture to their own destruction. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand God's purpose and plan in the world. And here we find these Sadducees who, who took this, this provision that God made in the law for a widow and for her husband for their good, and they try to use it as a point to prove there is no resurrection because of this awful dilemma that she's going to have when she gets into the resurrection. She's not going to know who her husband is. Now, this was a provision in the law that Moses gave. If a man were to marry and die without a child, then his name would be erased. His name would not continue the family lineage would not continue. Now, that was a very significant thing to the people of God. Remember, the promise of the Messiah was that the seed of the woman would come up. And so uh, they took their heritage and, 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 and their lineage, their genealogy was very important. It was a very important part of their life. And it ought to be a more important part of ours. But here we find God makes provision for a man who dies an untimely death without a son by saying, if he's married, then his brother will marry his wife and raise up seed. And that won't be the brother's son. That will be the former brother who has passed away. That'll be his son. And that way his name will continue. He will have an inheritance. He will have a heritage in Israel. 
And so they take that example and they make this somewhat ridiculous scenario out of it where this woman, her husband dies, then the brother comes along and then he dies. And you find yourself in the beginning feeling sorry for the wife, but by the time she's gone through seven of the brothers, you're beginning to feel sorry for the brothers, right? And so here the Sadducees are in their foolishness and in their ignorance, in their lack of knowledge of God's word, trying to say, we've caught you in a situation in the dilemma here that you cannot solve. That happens in the classrooms across this, this nation every, every week. I remember an obnoxious professor that I had at the University of Tennessee talking about Jesus promising to come again, and now it's been 2,000 years since he has, uh, has uh, been crucified and, uh, and uh, supposedly uh, resurrected, and he still hasn't come, as if to imply to a classroom full of students that he's not going to come. But what he did not consider the words of Peter who said, and the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to us not willing that any should perish, including an arrogant professor, but that all should come to the, re- to the repentance, all should come to the knowledge of God. You see, the Lord will surely come, but every day that he doesn't, he's extending mercy and more mercy, opportunity and more opportunity for people to be saved. So they ask him a question disingenuously. And then we see, this scribe who apparently is standing by, and he's sort of the, uh, he's, he, he's the one who doesn't fit into the group because the Bible tells us in verse number 34, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, now that word means that he possessed discernment. This was a man who might have been a part of the initial group to say, we're against him, but as he listened to Jesus, He asked a sincere question. What's the greatest commandment? And when he heard the answer that the Lord Jesus gave, he agreed with it. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly with discernment, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God and no man after that durst ask him any question. And so we see assertions are made. Then we see finally, number four, answers are given. By the way, Jesus has all the answers. He is the answer. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now notice the answers that he gives. First of all, we find in verse number 15, when the question comes, shall we give or shall we not give? Should we pay our taxes, yes or no? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. They said, Should we pay our taxes to the Roman Empire? Can you imagine the tension there? You have those zealots who say, Oh, absolutely not. You have the common people who think, well, these are the leaders. They know everything. And then you have Jesus, the son of God, who's getting ready to expose them for their foolishness and to reveal to the people. And by the way, the Bible tells us that the common people heard him gladly in Mark chapter 12. And what the people of this nation need, they need to hear Jesus. 
and the people charged with the responsibility of, of declaring his word, that's us, that's his church. And I believe we'll be shocked at how many will hear him gladly. We've been convinced by the devil and his crowd that nobody wants to hear, but that is a lie of the devil. We are commissioned to preach the gospel to every creature. Let's get the message of the gospel out. So he takes the coin in hand and he says, you see this coin? Whose image is on the front of this coin? They say unto him, Caesar's. You see, this coin minted by the Roman government, backed up by the Roman government, this way of life that you enjoy or that you suffer through, however you look at it, <laughs> it is preserved and kept by the Roman government. Therefore, he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then he said, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, the Herodian crowd said, you better pay your taxes. Jesus said, pay your taxes. The Pharisee crowd said, don't pay your taxes, but honor God. Jesus said, honor God. You see, you can do both. You can honor human government, and we're commanded to do that. And you can honor God. Now, there are instances, and there may come, and there surely will come, instances where the church is called upon by the government to dishonor God. And it is in those times we must heed the advice of the apostle Peter who said we ought to obey God rather than men. But here we find the wisdom of Jesus. You see, stamped on a coin is the image of Caesar. Stamped on you and I is the image of God. And we must render to God what is God's. Notice the response, verse 17. And they marveled at him. They had laid the perfect trap. These two opposing groups coming together to ensnare him in his words, no matter what answer he gave, they had him. Somebody was going to be upset. They were going to turn against him. He would be finished. And what did he do? He blew their trap apart. And they marveled at him. Then we come to his answer to the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees now, the question on the resurrection. Who's the woman going to be married to? They, they find this passage in the Old Testament law, and they say, we're going to use this against Jesus to deny the resurrection. But notice how he turns it on them. Look in verse 24. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures. Hey, we found this in the Old Testament. I think we can use this against Jesus. And then he says to them, you don't even know the Bible that you claim to use. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. By the way, if we won't get into the scriptures, how is it that we'll know the power of God? It is the scripture that is the power of God. The Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we proclaim the gospel, we are preaching the gospel of God. That's why we need more Bible preaching. Faith cometh by hearing 
and hearing by the word of God. What will transform the life of a man? It is the word of God. It is the power of that word. And he said, your problem, you little Sadducees, is that you do not know the scripture and you do not know the power of God. Notice verse 25. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. There's no reason to propagate the human race in heaven. He says in verse 26, and is touching the dead that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. You see, when God said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, he's using present tense. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive when Moses was on earth. They were just in the presence of God. And he's blowing their arguments out of the water. How often do we come to God with wrong attitudes and misconceptions and uh, little thoughts? Have you ever heard anybody say this? Well, this is what I believe. Oh, we often say it, don't we? Well, let me tell you what I believe. And my idea of God and my, my idea of Christianity, and this is the way I believe church ought to be. The world is filled with all kinds of notions. In fact, we have people today who deny the Bible and the Word of God who want to define for us what Christianity ought to look like. And they often say, well, you people aren't very Christian. And if you're really a Christian, you'll, you'll, you'll accept all sorts of immorality and wickedness and you won't have any condemnation or any message against it whatsoever. They got a big problem. They don't know the scriptures and they've erred. And you know, even people who carry Bibles into church and, and open hymn books and sing often have the same problem. We err in our thinking and in our behavior. Why? Because we don't know the scriptures. That ought to challenge us, shouldn't it? The Bible said that the Bereans were noble. Why? Because they searched the scriptures. Do you know what you and I are charged with the responsibility of doing? searching the scriptures. But the truth of the matter is, most of us just pick it up once a week, and that's to carry it to church. May God help us to get into the Bible, to know how we ought to think, how we ought to behave, what ideas and what notions God has approved, what God wants to do in our life as we come before him. And then we have the, the answer that was given to the scribe. You see it in verse 29. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is likewise, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's none other commandment greater than these. In fact, Jesus said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. The, the law turns on those hinges of those two commandments. Now, we know the Ten Commandments. We know them, right? The first four deal with my relationship to God. The next six deal with my relationship with man. 
if I love God with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my soul, then I'm going to have no problem fulfilling the first four commandments. If I love my neighbor as myself, then I'm going to have no problem in fulfilling the next six. You see, the Lord defines here the essence of the law. And as the scribe said, that means more. That is more significant than the entire system of sacrifices. You see, people would get in the habit of just coming and giving the sacrifice with no regard for how they were living. Christian people are in that habit today, right? We come and we fulfill our obligation and then we go about our life and our business doing as we please. But if we truly love God, it will change us. It will change us. The reason we don't do what we should do is because we don't love him the way we should love him. And so the Lord says to this man in verse number 34, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Now who else could have told him that? No scribe had that authority. No Herodian had that authority. No Pharisee had that authority. And definitely no Sadducee. But Jesus had that authority. He gave the answer. He said in Matthew 12, 42, he says, the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He's speaking here of the queen of Sheba. She came to hear Solomon's wisdom and she heard it. And when she left, she said, the half has not been told. And then Jesus said, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Hey, this is not the wisdom of just an earthly king. This is the wisdom of the ages. This is the wisdom of God speaking to mortal men. Imagine their arrogancy as they came to the Son of God trying to impose upon him the answer that they wanted to hear rather than coming to him in humility saying, teach us. And by the way, many people today come to God the same way. They want approval of their sin and their wicked circumstances and their wicked thoughts and behaviors. And they want a God who will conform to that rather than a God who will speak truth to them. And we fall in the same snare. May God help us. We serve the God of the ages, and he has all the answers. And I know that most of you know that, and most of you believe that. What about a world that doesn't? How do we cope with it? How do we cope with the hatred and the animosity? How do we cope with the decay that we see in our world? I'll tell you what we, what we do. We look to the one who has the answers and told us it would be this way. And we understand that every day we endure it is one day closer to his coming. We also understand that as people who have the answers, it is our responsibility to give answers because the common people are out there. And as they hear Jesus, all of this ideology, all of this hatred and animosity toward God is going to and is being exposed as false. These narratives are crashing. These agendas 
are, are, are breaking up. It may not seem that way, but it is happening. And people will need an answer. And where will they find it? From the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. May God help us. We have the truth. We have the answers. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, but let's declare it boldly and plainly and powerfully. And then let's understand that when we come to Jesus, we come in humility. We come to him saying, Lord, don't approve, don't validate of my sinful notions. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. But God, help me to come in humility and help me to hear your voice and speak to me that I would not be conformed to this world or the pattern of its thinking, but that I would be transformed by the renewing of my mind. You see, that happens as I come in light of Jesus when I come to his feet and his mind is communicated to my heart and I begin to think as he thinks. Oh, may God deliver us from the thinking of this foolish world. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. The world thinks the gospel's foolish. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. It's the thing that saved us delivered us from death and hell and the penalty of sin. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And the Bible said, and they durst not ask him. Any more questions? He put them to silence. And when he comes again, he'll put all their mouths to silence. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used his word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.